0: you would turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We are continuing in a, a message that began last week and as you see the title is Responses to Divine Wisdoms part 2 and our keywords this morning are spiritual, fleshly and babes or babies. Last week we looked at Uh, chapter 2 verses 14 through 16 and as as I talked about last week that as Paul has been unpacking the wisdom of the cross the wisdom of Christ crucified to this beleaguered and divided church he's showing them that the errors that they have been making by leaning on the wisdom of men and how they are trying to uh, blend together the wisdom of men with the wisdom of God and as he's showing these things do not work you cannot do that And so he's been very uh, painstakingly laying out the wisdom of Christ crucified. And that is the power that God has provided for the world and for the church especially. And so then as we looked at last week, we began to look at, okay, how do people respond to this message? How do people respond to the wisdom of God and to the wisdom of Christ crucified? And we've seen these two groups of people that we talked about last week. And I just want to go back through them again so that we can tie it into this week. Uh, First we looked at the natural person in chapter 14, and and what we've seen there is that, as he says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to discern them because they are spiritually discerned. So what we talked about and what we've seen was that every person who's ever born, every descendant of Adam, which all of us are, as we are born, we are born with the sinful nature that Adam and Eve brought upon the earth whenever they've sinned in the garden. And so we are born with this depraved nature, this nature that does not uh, accept the things of God. And and what we were talking about last week is that it's not that we don't understand the words. It's not that we don't understand the concepts uh, that God is putting forth. It's just the fact that we do understand them very clearly. But when we hear them and when they are put before us, we immediately declare them as foolishness. We cannot accept them. We will actually... Uh, turn away from them. We will walk away saying that is idiotic. That is foolishness. I cannot receive that. And so that is the plight of the natural man. That is the plight of every single human being on the earth today. That was our plight before God saved us. Uh, we were not looking for God. We were not seeking God. In fact, as the Bible says, we were at enmity with God. We, we hated God. We were His enemies. And, we, and we, that is exactly what we wanted to be. And so that is the first response we see Uh, From the message of the cross, it is foolishness uh, to the natural person. And then we look on the other side of the coin to the spiritual person. Uh, Verse 15 says, The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And so what we've seen there is that once the Spirit of God comes in and does that radical heart surgery upon the natural person... He then changes that person forever. Uh, a heart change has taken place. And so now we are able to uh, to appraise things. We are able to judge things correctly. We are able to see for the first time uh, what life is about, what the demands of God who puts upon us. And most importantly, we see our state before Him, and we bemoan that. For the first time, we began to hate ourselves. Before we loved ourselves... Uh, We were our our greatest person on planet uh, was ourselves. But now something radically different has happened to us. Now we hate ourselves. We can appraise our value before God and our state before God. And so we agree with Him that we must be saved. And so in that sense that we are able to see things more clearly. And because we have the Holy Spirit, as we talked about, that's not something that we just all of a sudden, the light bulb goes off one day. It is because the Holy Spirit has taken seat upon our hearts that we're able to judge things. And because the Holy Spirit is there, now we have the mind of Christ because it is the Holy Spirit's job to proclaim Christ, to to, to teach about Christ. And so because of that, Now we are able to appraise things and we we do not stand in judgment by anyone. No one else can stand in judgment upon us. Uh, We are are walking in the ways of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. And even though the world hates us and calls us foolish, uh, we know that that is not where our value comes. That is not where our calling comes. And so now we're getting into, because as Paul unpacks that, as he talks about these two groups... um, the, the the question has to be begged: Do do the Corinthians really fit in any of these two groups that he's talked about? Do the Corinthians really fit in the natural man group, or re- do they really fit in the spiritual in the spiritual man group? And so, what he's going to be doing here now, he's going to be begin to to address them personally. And so, we're going to talk about. Uh, what, where, where these people are, uh, were they natural, were they spiritual, where were they at? There is much confusion and uh, much debate, I think, in the church today over these verses. Um, there are people and theologians in the church today who say that, uh, that, that Paul here is talking about a separate group of people. There's actually three groups of people on the earth. Uh, the two that we just talked about, the natural person who is the unsaved person, the spiritual person who in the sense of what Paul is talking here is the mature Christian, the Christian who is walking in the Spirit, who is growing in grace. But there's also a third group of people who, although they are saved, although they are going to heaven, they, don't, they do not show any evidence of that salvation in their lives. They, they show no repentance. They show no joy. They show nothing that would, t- that would, help, that would make you to think that anything has happened uh, to their lives. And so in, in this teaching, many people in the church say that's really the essence of their entire life. Uh, they can go through their entire life that way, and that's really what they call a carnal Christian. And that's where we get that from here in this verse. Um, I believe in the New King James, and the King James Version it actually addresses the people that, that Paul is talking to as carnal people, as carnal Christians. And so uh, is that really what Paul is talking about here? Is there a third group of people uh, that can never show any evidence of salvation in their life, uh, or, or is it something else? I think we're going to find out that it's something else because I think as we have gone through the book of 1 John in the last, well, several months, we see clearly uh, that, that the person who is saved by grace is radically different than the world. Uh, ultimately, finally, that person will grow. That person will show evidences of, uh, of new life. But we can't fall into the other ditch and say, well, there's no such thing as a fleshly Christian or a carnal Christian. Because Paul is dealing with a church here who is not really acting like the mature believers that he talked about in verse 15. And so what do you do with these people? They're not acting mature. Uh, And so what what kind of people are there? So that's what we're going to start looking at here because Paul is in a dilemma. Uh, He he says in verse 1, "...but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ." So how does he address them here? Well he says he can't address them as spiritual people, so he's coming out of verse fifteen he says, the spiritual person uh, is the one who's mature, but you don't fit that you don't fit that category. you are not acting mature, you don't look like that and so and so now he has to uh how does he how does he address them He addresses them as fleshly people as uh as as people who are in the flesh as infants in Christ. Now one thing I want you to notice here. Then the first verse and really up through most of the second verse, he's talking in the past tense. And so what he's doing here is that he's relaying to them that when I first came to you, because keep in mind this is several years after Paul planted this church when he's writing back. after he's heard about all the reports from Chloe and, and the divisions that are happening in this church. Several years have passed since he first planted this church. And so you have to remember as we talked about the history of this church and where it came from, these were some people who, who had very pagan ideas uh, all around them. And so they came out of that culture. Uh, and, and, and so they were they were very, very astute in the ways of the world. They had walked in that for many years. And so he's saying here that, brothers, when I first came to you, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. And so he's telling them here that when I first came to you, when I first proclaimed the gospel of Christ to you, I went slow with it. I took it easy on you. I I, I taught you the things of Christ, but I understood that you were coming out of the world. You were coming out of the world of people of the flesh, the natural man. And so so whenever you're coming into a person like that, you have to understand that those people are going to be slow in grasping these things. And so he's saying here that I took my time with that. I took it easy. Uh, I, I addressed you as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, and really that's what every Christian who was ever born again—that's what he is. He's an infant in Christ. He starts out as a baby. You can you can you can use the analogy of the physical life over into the spiritual life. Whenever we're born, we're not born fully grown. Adam and Eve were the only people who were ever put on the earth fully grown human beings. Everyone since then has been born in the natural way as a baby and grows up, and so. What he's saying here is that when I first came to you, I came to you as people, uh, you were people of the flesh and you were infants in Christ. And so then he goes on in verse 2 to say, how did he address these people? How did he handle these people? How did he minister to these people? Well, he says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And so again, he's taking into account that they were, they were babies in Christ, they they didn't understand things as clearly they were still wrestling with the, with the old nature, the flesh and so what he's saying there is that I fed you with milk, not solid food now what is that milk? what does that mean what is what is this diet of milk and solid food? Uh, does this mean that, that Paul only taught them certain doctrines you know like some of the elementary doctrines he only taught some of them and then he got, went into bigger things later or what does it mean? Well, I think if we look back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, we can see the content of Paul's message. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So we see here from the very beginning, Paul was teaching the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so whenever he's talking about uh, proclaiming milk to these people, I don't think he's talking about teaching them kindergarten level doctrines or whatever whatever you might want to put in that category. The doctrine of Christ crucified was Paul's message from the very beginning. But the reason it was milk was not so much in the content of the message itself, but the way it was being perceived by the people. They were babes. They were new believers. And so they were taking it in as milk. And so Paul was bringing it to them gradually. And we have to understand that the doctrine of Christ crucified is a doctrine that we will be studying for the rest of our life. We began studying the the message of our Savior being crucified. And part of that is what we are uh, going to be uh, going through this week in in Christmas season and understand the incarnation of... All that is built into the to the message of Christ crucified. And so that message can be for a little a little baby or a little child who we teach Sunday school, and it can be the most seasoned saint who has ever lived. The doctrine of Christ crucified has that depth much depth to it. And so when Paul is saying here is that as new converts, though the ramifications of, of that would be different, he he's saying that. That, that, that he's going to be more careful with them than he would a less mature saint as he teaches them these doctrines. So milk is really teaching that is uniquely designed to get a proud sinner started on the path of humility and hope. That is what the message of Christ crucified does. As you mature, the level and depth of understanding of Christ crucified grows as well. As we grow up, as we're constantly learning about the message of Christ, and the crucifixion and, and, the, and the wisdom of God in that, our understanding is growing and it's producing more humility and Christ likeness in it. I want you to turn back, keep your fingers here, to Hebrews chapter 5. There's a parallel passage, passage that'll help us understand this a little better. Hebrews chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 11. while you're turning there just to set the context of chapter 5, where, well, the, really the entire context of the book of Hebrews is about Christ. It's about the supremacy of Christ in all things. And so here in chapter 5, the writer here is, is talking about the priestly office of Christ himself. And it's a better and a greater office than the Levitical priesthood was. And he's comparing him to, the, to this character in the Old Testament, Melchizedek. And he's saying in verse 10 that Christ being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then verse 11 he says, about this, about what he's talking about, about Christ being a a greater high priest, he says, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And so that's going to help us as we begin to get into what Paul is doing here because when he's talking about there, he fed them with milk, not solid food as at the beginning of his ministry with them. Really, he's not scolding them for that. That's what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to... Uh, Gently began to expose them To the message of Christ crucified And he did that And then he left Apollos And some other teachers there As he left and went on And so flipping back You can keep your fingers there in Hebrews Because I'm going to go back there in a minute Flipping back he he says As I fed you with milk not solid food For you were not ready for it And then what does he say And even now you are not yet ready And so we see a change in tone here now he was talking in the past tense. He was saying, When I first came to you, uh, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as you were infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. But then he comes back several years later, and what does he, what does he want to see? He should see saints who have grown, saints who are greater understanding of the crucifixion and the ramifications of that. He should see humility and wisdom coming out in these people. But what does he see? He says, And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. And so now is where the scathing rebuke begins for Paul. Now is when he's beginning to dig it in and say, what is going on with you? Here's where the rebuke starts. Paul is shifting from the past tense to the present tense. Now what does he mean by people of the flesh? Because that makes me think that, well, he's talking about a natural person. The natural person is a person of the flesh. He's in the flesh, right? The flesh is evil, right? Well, it's interesting that these words he uses here. Uh, the one we see in verse one, where he says, "You as spirit uh, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh," we see that one time. That's the Greek word "sarkinos." Uh, and then in verse three, we see, "For you were still of the flesh," and then he goes on to say. Uh, because they were acting jealously in strife, that you are you not of the flesh. That's a that's a similar Greek word. It's very similar, but it's a little bit different. It's, that's the Greek word sarkikos. The only difference is the ending. Uh, there's very little difference. The difference is that the first word means made of the flesh. If you are if you're made of something, you have the characteristics that you're made of that. And so in verse one, when he says you are, but I, I could not address you as spiritual people. But as people of the flesh, he's not saying that they were made of flesh in the sense that they were unsaved here. What he's saying there is that I could not address you as spiritual people, but I will address you as a natural person, which you have came out of. You're not even though you have been radically saved by God, even though uh, your salvation was not dependent on anything that you've done, but in the sense of you were just an infant, you were a baby, you were acting, you're going to act selfishly, you're going to act like that. And so in that sense, you're you're made of that that type of uh, of flesh. But then he says in verse 3 that for you are still of the flesh. That word is a little bit more powerful. Uh, That word is the Greek word sarkikos, and it means to be characterized by the flesh, something that is willful or blameworthy. In other words, you are controlled by the flesh. And so that's where the, the, the sting of the rebuke comes by Paul here. He's saying... That, yeah, I know that you are not an unsafe person. You are a Christian. And, and, and to prove that Paul knows these people are Christians is what does he say right there in verse 1? He says, but I have brothers. He's addressing them as his brethren. And, uh, and, and all the way up in chapter 2, uh, verse 12, he says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. And so if you have received the Spirit, you are a Christian, right? And so these people were his brothers. They were his fellow Christians. But... Because of what he's saying here, because of they have not progressed, he is saying that you are showing evidences that you are a natural person. You look no different than the people around you who are unsaved. And so that's what he's talking about there with that word. And so the question we have to ask, and Paul is probably going through his mind, is that what's wrong here? Why have these people not grown because as he called them infants in Christ, naturally he did not expect to come back and, and, and meet infants in Christ with these people. I mean, we know that in the natural realm, right? Whenever a baby's born, what, is it, what does it do? It grows. It's just something that happens. You put, you put a bottle in it and it grows. You know, and we think that something's wrong when it doesn't. I mean, look, little Chloe Honor. I mean, she was prematurely born and she was small and they kept her in there for a while in the hospital. Why? Because she wasn't growing and that's not normal. You have to, the, the natural way, the normal way of uh, of the physical life is for growth to happen, and so, and so what Paul is saying here is that why has not growth happened? What's going on here? Well, I think we have to. One thing we have to understand is, in, as we're looking at this, so that we don't uh, commit some errors, is that we have to maintain the difference between justification and sanctification. Okay, we have to understand the difference between justification and sanctification. Justification is that one-time act solely by God to declare a person just in His sight. And so when Paul here says, but I, brothers, I could not address you as I want to, but he's saying, you are my brethren. I know you have the Spirit of God. I know, as he said in verse, one of chap- or, or verse 2 of chapter 1, that you were sanctified in Christ Jesus. You have been set apart. Something has happened to you. I witnessed that. I know that is true of you. He's saying, because of that, I know that you've been justified. But sanctification is a whole different thing. Sanctification is that lifelong process of growth in spiritual maturity. And if you would, flip over to Galatians chapter 4. I want to show you something that will kind of shed a little bit of light on this. Because when he's talking about this issue of sanctification, we have to realize that that's going to be different in each individual. Justification is the same for each person across the board. There is no difference. You are no more justified than I am. The Apostle Paul was no more justified than we are. At the moment he was justified, he was declared right with God in heaven. And that is a, that is a legal term where God says, I, I, I look at you and I declare you not guilty in the courts of heaven. And so that cannot be improved on. It cannot be detracted from. And so in that sense, all of these Christians, all these people here are justified But in Galatians chapter 5, let's look first at verse 24. He says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You see the past tense in that? Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. So there we're talking about that flesh nature, that old nature. It's been crucified. It's been put on the cross with Christ, nailed to the cross, dead forever. And so we know that to be true. But earlier in the chapter... In verse 13 he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And so what's going on here? Because the flesh has been crucified, right? It's dead. But Paul is telling us here to not allow the freedoms that we enjoy in Christ to be an opportunity for our flesh to rise up. So is it dead or not? Well, yes, it's dead in the sense that it can never be held against us in the court of God. It, it has We have been declared righteous solely because... Not because God has said something has happened in you that's, that's good that will, that will allow me to declare you righteous. No, because God has said, because of your faith in my son and because of his finished work on the cross, I declare you not guilty because of his work on the cross, his death and resurrection. And so he's saying because of that you are justified. But the remnants of that old nature have not been eradicated. We can kind of look at it as a guerrilla war, a guerrilla warfare. The war has been won. The enemy has been defeated but he has not been eradicated. He has not been completely destroyed. He is a ruthless enemy and he will not surrender. And he will continue to wage war against us. But instead of an organized army before us like it was before, he has now been defeated and scattered into the mountains and he's waging a guerrilla warfare against us now. That's what's happening to each and every one of us. We are in that war. We are facing that warfare every day. And our enemy, Satan, is a ruthless enemy. And so he knows exactly how to attack each individual one of us. He knows where our weaknesses are. And so Paul understands that each individual Christian are going to be on different levels of maturity, different places of that sanctification scale, that process that's taken place. And so he understands that. And so what he's saying here he's, as he begins to uh, instruct them is that even though I know you're saved, I know that something is wrong here. You are not growing as you should because he also, the truth of God is that once he has begun a work in us, he will complete it, as he says in Philippians 1. And so God is working in us. He didn't just save us and set us over here on the side and say, okay, do the best you can with it. I'll give you a good book to read, but do the best you can. No, the power of God is at work in us. The Holy Spirit has set up in us. And so he, in that sense, is telling us that we, we, are, we are in work with God, in conjunction with God, in slaying those people, uh, those passions, those fleshly passions, because they wage war against us. Go back again to Hebrews 5. I want to re revisit that passage <laughs> that will help us understand why these Corinthians haven't grown and really why do we want to understand that? Because we have to look at ourselves. We have to examine ourselves in light of what these people are going through. Again in Hebrews 5, he says And so what's the key here? Why have not the Corinthians grown? Why, have, why are they still infants in Christ? Why is Paul having to come back and scold them? Because they had not been training themselves. They had not trained themselves in divine wisdom. They were focused on their worldly pursuits and their worldly wisdom. We're just about now to get in, start getting into some of the things that, that, that were plaguing this church, some of the individual things they were struggling with. But the one thing we're seeing over and over here in the early parts of this book is that they were struggling uh, with pride, with selfishness. And what does he say there uh, in verse 3? Uh, verse for you are still of the flesh, for where there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? And so what he's saying there is that because you have not been discerning because you have not been you are unskilled in the word because you have not availing yourself of the wisdom of christ crucified through the through the word of god you are you are an infant you do not understand divine wisdom you are not responding to divine wisdom in the proper way and there's no wonder you have not grown because the nourishment that comes through the word of god you have not availed yourself of in fact you are actually availing yourself of just the opposite because the jealousy and strife that was there, and what is jealousy and strife? Jealousy is really when you, when, you, when, you, uh, when you see something in somebody else and you don't want them to have that. You want yourself to have it. You're jealous of that, and that produces strife. Well, that's just really pride. That's all that is. It's pride. And so he's saying there, because of that, because of that jealousy and strife, you are showing that you are only behaving in a human way. You are acting like that old nature. And he gives that example. He says, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? And so he comes full circle again because he addressed that all the way back in chapter 1, uh, verse uh, 12. He says, I, some of them were saying, I follow Paul, or I follow, I follow Apollos, or Cephas, or Christ. And so what he was saying there is, in, in that sense, he was saying "As Christ divided. And so here he's addressing them again over that pride, that selfishness that was drawing them to build to, to, to create factions among them. And all that is is really, is really a lack of humility. It's a lack of divine wisdom which produces humility. It's a lack of understanding the ramifications of the crucifixion of the incarnation and then the crucifixion of Christ upon our lives. And it was producing great strife and division in this church because they had sided themselves up with different leaders. And as we see as we go on into this book, they were using their gifts against each other or forsaking serving one another for the exaltation of their own gifts and giftedness. And so this church was was all about self. If we could just put it in a simple label. This church was about itself. It was all about self. Each individual was out for his own self. And that is the very definition of pride and the, the very antithesis of humility. And so as I was studying through this this week and just trying to think, you know, what can we, what can we get from this? What can we gather from this, from this rebuke that Paul is bringing to this church? Because really, he's bringing it to the apex now. As we get past this, he's going to begin to start uh, talking about his own ministry and defending his ministry as an apostle and getting into some of the specifics things that were beginning to divide. in him. he's bringing it to an apex now. He's showing them that the key, the reason that you were divided and the key to success is what you do with divine wisdom. It's how you handle the wisdom of God. Whether you want to just... Listen to it for uh, an hour or two on Sunday and then think about it next Sunday. Are are you going to be uh, 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 contemplating that all through the week? Are you going to be looking into the Scriptures to see where you are missing that wisdom? I mean, we had a whole Sunday school class this morning where we're talking about, we're in the Proverbs and we're looking at wisdom. And we're we're just charting it all over the board and looking at all the ramifications that one little tiny word has in our life. And it's huge. We talked about this morning where it says in the Proverbs where, where as if we seek wisdom, it's, he's comparing it's greater than gold and silver. You know, and, 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 and Glenn was challenging us as, a, as, as he was teaching us that do, you really, do we really think through that? Because we will give the cookie-cutter Sunday school answer and say, oh, yeah, man, um, wisdom, that's better than gold or silver. Yeah, absolutely, I agree with that. But do you really understand what he's talking about there? If somebody came and dropped up dropped had two bags in their hands and walked in and walked up to you and one of them said wisdom and one of them said one billion dollars, which would your flesh and which would you be wanting to grab and reach out for? I'm, that scares me because I'm not sure which one I would. I'm tempt, I, I want to say yeah, I'm, I'm gonna grab for wisdom, but I don't know. I don't know if 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 I'm walking in the spirit enough, if I'm growing in wisdom enough to know that the allure of that. Of that billion dollars that's sitting there, that gold and silver has lost its allurement to me because I don't know that it has. And we especially are bombarded with that in this season and Christmas as we were looking for, looking for all the, the, the good gifts to give our kids so that we can see that one little smile on their face that will last for about 30 seconds and then it's gone forever. And then that thing is thrown in the closet with last year's toys you know, listen. I'm not. I'm not speaking against that. I'm a part of that too, and we like to see that. But do you understand what I'm saying with that? It's the wisdom of God that we need to be invested in with the same the same vigor that we put into Christmas and, and approaching Christmas and doing all these things for our kids. Do we do we use that same vigor and zeal in seeking for God's wisdom? Because that is what makes us into Christians who are spirit filled who will walk through life with joy and excitement. Brother Jeff asked me this morning, how's my joy? (laughs) He's a a great brother to just get right to the point and throw those good questions out to you. And And I was honest. I said, brother, I need work there. I need help. And I need prayer. Because I don't know that it's where it should be. I don't know that I'm seeking God's wisdom as I should. And so we have to We have to understand that this is is what our lives are about. We can't just think about these things one day a week. We have to invest our life in the pursuit of God's divine wisdom in the cross of Christ crucified. That must be what we are about. That must be what defines us as families, as individuals, and as a church. So just a couple of closing observations. I think one thing we're seeing here that there's danger in drifting, and so we must not allow ourselves to drift in the Christian life. These Corinthians were drifting in their, in their pursuit of uh, of growth. They had become laxadaisical. They had they, the wisdom of the world was pulling at them, and they were giving into it. They were drifting. You know, we have to look at life as if we're salmon in the stream, right? You know, you ever seen the salmon that swims upstream? I mean, and do, do you think they can? Stop and, Oh man, I just got to breathe a minute. What's going to happen? Pfft, they're back down river about a mile. You know, they're going up river with everything they've got because they're they're going toward. They know where they're going, and they, they're not going to stop till they get there. And the current will take them back in the other direction if they stop for a minute. And that's what life is like. the The current of worldliness. And, and, and our fleshiness is is trying to drag us backwards. And as soon as we stop for one second and take our guard down, we're going backwards. And so we have to see it as we cannot allow ourselves to drift. We must focus on our growth. We must focus on our accountability with one another as we help that, as we as we want to see that growth happening in us. And we must avail ourselves of what God has given us. He's given us the power of God. That's what He's talking about in this whole section. The, the, the divine wisdom of Christ crucified is the power of God. That's what God is using to grow us. And He grows us through the, through the, through the investment of His Word and, and wisdom of His Word and through prayer and through each other as we, as we grow together, as we build these, these, these relationships of accountability... You know, that's what it's about. That's that's where we're investing in in that growth, and we're in we're in the stream. We're in the right place, and we're swimming with everything we've got, and we're in there together. And we're going to beat that. We're going to go against the stream, and we're going to get to where we're going. But we cannot drift. We cannot just stop, because you're either growing or you're dying. It's that simple. You're either growing or you're dying. Another thing I think we can see here is that. We shouldn't be so quick to write off someone who's struggling in their sin. Paul didn't write these people off. you know. He probably, if anybody does, he, he, I, would have, I would have done that. I said, you know, you people don't get it. You're not interested in what, what, what I started with you. I'll just move on. He didn't do that. He said he understood that they have what they need to straighten this out. They just need to do one thing, and that's repent. That's what it's about. That's what the Christian life is about. It's about repentance and growth. And then you know what? You repent again and you grow again. You repent, repent and grow, repent and grow, repent and grow. That's what, you all, that's what we do every day. Our life is about repentance and growth. And so we cannot be so quick to write off someone who's struggling. Now obviously people who, who live in the flesh day after day after day, we don't want to create a new title for them. That, oh, you're just a, a carnal Christian. You know, we don't want to soothe anybody who's in their sin. But we also don't want to write them off. You know, our focus is always the same. It's always very simple. We approach them with the Word of God, in humility and grace, just as God does us with humility and grace. And as we do that, we we should not treat continued immaturity as unimportant. If we see someone who's constantly in a struggle, then we should go to them. Again, we should not just write them off as a carnal Christian or a fleshly Christian or, oh, that's just, that's just the best they're going to do or that's just so-and-so. You know him. He just backs people's heads off. He just loses his cool all the time. That's just him. No, we've got to get past that. We've got to see that if someone is in sin, they're struggling. In Galatians 6.1, what does it say? If anyone is caught up in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So, Paul is showing us here that there are different levels of spirituality here. He's not saying that that verse is, is there for just the people who are super spiritual, who are always walking in, uh, walking in the Spirit, and then there's those that are not. And you've got this group who all they do in life, they just walk around and say, okay, there's somebody who's walking in the flesh. I'll run over there and rescue them. This is for all of us. This verse here is for all of us. All, who is spiritual? The person who's received the Holy Spirit. Now, it does presuppose that we're walking in the Spirit and we're growing in our maturity. But this verse is for all of us. If anyone is caught up, that word caught up means caught up unawares. It's almost as if you're just walking along and you just got swept up by something. It just took you over. just cut your legs right out from under you and just started dragging you off. That's what that word's talking about. If you're caught up in any transgression, go and restore that person in a spirit of gentleness. Why? Because you need to be careful lest you too be tempted. You are just as apt to be caught up in a transgression as well, and maybe next month the tide will be turned, and it'll be that person just coming to rescue you. That's how we prevent this drift, this lack of growth, because it's not normal, Christians. It's not normal for a Christian to not grow, but it does happen, and that thus we have all of the warnings, and proddings of Scripture to grow in grace and to not give opportunities for the flesh. And we have everything we need to live a life of godliness. God has given us everything we need. We have the power of the Spirit to do that. I want to close with a quote from John MacArthur in his commentary. And I wanted to read it right out of the book because I wanted you to know that this was his words and not mine. Because he's talking about here, Uh, the division that's happening. And really, remember, all of these things that we've been talking about for the past few weeks is about division, division in the church. Because these people were divided. They were divided amongst their leaders. Some of them were dividing with Paul and some were Apollos, and so they were messed up. So listen to this. Division can only occur when there is selfishness. Fleshly, immature people cooperate only with those leaders and fellow believers with whom they happen to agree or who personally appeal to them or will flatter them. Factions cannot help resulting where there is jealousy and strife or any other form of carnality. When a congregation develops loyalties around individuals, it is a sure symptom of spiritual immaturity and trouble. It was sinful for factions to develop around Paul and Apollos, and it is sinful for divisive factions to develop around any leader in the church today. And if you are like me... When I first read that, I, was, I had other people's faces going through my mind and other names going through my mind. But the reason I'm reading this to you this morning is not to identify those other people, but as a warning to us that unless we are walking in humility, unless we are living in the shadow of Christ crucified, unless we are... Pursuing that wisdom as if we were pursuing that billion dollars, we will have the same factions develop all over again in this church. We will always be that way. We will always be a people who are mad and angry and who do not forgive and do not love. That will be our testimony in this community. And we have to say, enough of that. We have to say, we are a people of humility. We won't say that. That's what we want others to say of us. We have to see that whatever has happened to our church, it is as, just as much as my fault as it is anybody else's. And if, and if we all have that mindset, even with, with our church or even in our families or our relationships, that is the recipe for growth and grace, and that is the recipe for reconciliation and love and for spiritual growth to be happening amongst all of us. Because if we're all walking in humility and love and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control, those are the things that, that God does, um, does miraculous work through. Whether it be a marriage or, any, or, or, or parental relationship with your child or just one another. That's what, that's what I think God is, is warning us here is that we are a spiritual people. We are saved by grace. We're not spiritual because we walk in the Spirit. We're spiritual because God has made us spiritual, because we have the gift of the Spirit. But we still wage war against this flesh. And whenever you're waging war against the flesh, the only person you can focus on is your flesh, not, ever, not somebody else's. And if everybody is, is waging war on their own flesh, can you imagine, I don't know, I, I don't know, can you imagine what a church that would be and what marriages that would produce and what great godly offspring children that would produce? I think it will. And we need to be seeking that with everything that we have by God's grace. Let's pray. God, we just thank you so much, again, for the incarnation of Christ. And Father, we know that this world did not deserve such a great gift. And Father, we know that we can truly celebrate Christmas this year and every day, God, because we understand the reason for the incarnation, because we have been the beneficiaries of the cross. But Lord, forgive us when we act like the world. And help us, Father, to see, Father, that your your good name is attached to us, Father, and we know that all that we do is simply an extension of your grace through us so that your name might be glorified through us to this community. Bless us to be the type of people, Father, who forgive, who love, who serve others above ourselves, and for most, most importantly, God, who see our sin as the worst of them all. And God, we thank you for all that you do through us, and we give you the glory in Christ's name. Amen.